Hey, everybody. I'm Tara Luafemi. And I'm Darian Carr. And we are Masters of Architecture students at the GSD. The Nexus is produced in conjunction with a commitment by the Francis Loeb Library to acquire and create an open access bibliography of various media suggested by the community at the intersection between race and design. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. We will have Sean Canty joining us. Sean Canty is an assistant professor of architecture at Harvard University's Graduate School of Design and the founder of Studio Sean Canty, an architecture practice based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Canty is also one of the founding principals of Office 3, an experimental architectural collective that spans New York, San Francisco, and Cambridge. Selected as a finalist for the 2016 MoMA PS1 Young Architects Competition, O3 has completed a Welcome Center for Governors Island and exhibited work at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Canty was the recipient of the 2020 Richard Rogers Fellowship. Prior to joining the faculty at the GSD, Canty held teaching positions at the Cooper Union, University of California, Berkeley, and California College of the Arts. He received an MARC from Harvard University's Graduate School of Design and a BARC from California College of the Arts. Thank you for joining us, Sean. Thank you for having me. We're going to go ahead and start off with, I guess, the very beginning of your architecture career. What was your introduction to the world of architecture? Is it something you always felt drawn to or was there like an aha moment, some sort of event that influenced you to pursue this career? Hmm. You know, I'd say growing up that I was always pretty involved in the arts. I actually took a lot of art courses when I was a kid and piano lessons and jazz and ballet for some time before I got into architecture and design. And actually, I thought I was going to be a dancer for some time, but my mother found a high school that had a art and design-based theme to it. And she knew that I was interested in the arts, but I think it was more out of convenience for her that my new high school would be adjacent to or nearby my sister's um, elementary school. Anyway, I went to an arts-based high school where we took actually studio courses alongside of our normative curriculum. So once a day, I would have an hour and 45 minute design course. And it kind of functioned like a first year studio program at an art school. You know, you would start off with drawing in your freshman year. You would move to the basics of design in your second year. The third year, you were introduced to like industrial design and sculpture and painting. And then in your final year, you would do a kind of senior project. During my time at the high school, I grew very much interested in learning more about the built environment and wanted to get an internship at a firm. So I I worked for a small copy shop and I would drop off plans and legal documents to various firms in downtown Philadelphia. But I also, that opportunity allowed me to kind of see many different architectural offices in and around the city, you know, and One day I decided to bring a portfolio with me and ask if I could just shadow someone in this particular office for one day. That was during my sophomore year. And the principal at the time, a guy named David Sizer, said, actually, we just moved from Princeton. The office was KSS Architects, and we are starting our Philadelphia branch, and we need help around the office. So after school, I would spend my late afternoons into the early evenings interning at this office during high school. Um, And I learned a lot in that experience. And actually, my first day of college, I went, got into CCA for industrial design. But my first week, I decided to switch to architecture because I realized how much I enjoyed it when I was interning at the office. So you went to that school and then you went to the GSD to get your MRC. And to catch our listeners up with now, uh, and as they heard in the bio, you started Studio Sean Canty. And this practice is described as engaging the formal juxtaposition of interiors across a variety of scales, from objects to interiors, from domestic environments to cultural spaces. And I'm wondering when you knew you wanted to start your own practice and when you knew that would be the focus of your practice. Specifically, I'm thinking of Anthony Titus' lecture when he mentioned that one drawing can set you on your way or one project can set you on your way to the practice one might have? 
Yeah, I would say, you know, during my undergraduate experience at CCA, you know, it's a art and design college. Um, you take courses in both. My major was architecture. So I was exposed to a lot of creative disciplines outside of architecture while studying the field. And it's a small school. And because of that, you were very intimate and very close with all the professors. A lot of professors that had really interesting practices. It was a very design-forward school, not so technical, very conceptual. I think a good portion of the faculty either went to you know MIT, GSD, or Columbia. And I think because it was small, and I think because all the professors had their own practice, that was very insightful for me. Uh, and I would spend my summers, you know, actually interning with some professors and was just very excited about the kind of small scale studio and how it was kind of not so far off from studio and school. So they're very creative, but now I'm trying to think conceptually and think maybe holistically about how certain agendas within a discipline can now be mapped onto projects out in the real world. So, you know, particularly one of practices that I interned at for many years in school and out of school was Iwamoto Scott. Um, and I worked with them for quite some time, but it was a small office, a very diverse office. And the way that Craig and Lisa ran the firm was fun. It was rigorous. We were always working on many different things, small scale things, installations, houses, uh, spec houses, or an exhibition. So there was just a lot of energy. And for some reason, I think they facilitated a really good culture within their office. It was demanding, of course, but I'm still close friends with everyone that I've met there till this day. And I think I was constantly learning, too. I never felt like I was stuck or stagnant. So I was very fortunate to have that experience. And I saw in both Craig and Lisa, who both were academics themselves, Craig teaching at CCA and Lisa at UC Berkeley, the ways in which the academy had informed their thinking and how they would approach practice, um, which was very hands-on, very conceptual, very experimental, and yet still grounded in the kind of realities of all that it takes to kind of build a building. And because I was with the practice for so long, I could say that I was able to see the arc of its growth, the challenges of having a small firm and challenges of dealing with the clients, the challenges of losing a client. I think it's maybe harder to see some of those things in a kind of larger practice because there's systems and places to kind of keep things ordered. But in a small studio like that, everything is out in the open. And so I think I also just kind of learned by osmosis <laughs> just by being there every day and being there for a very long time, you know, from intern to designer and then coming back and being a kind of senior designer after grad school, really seeing how the practice evolved was helpful and that I actually wanted that. So actually I left after graduating and working there for a couple of years from undergrad, I, I left and decided to go to grad school because I wanted the possibility to teach at some point. And uh, most of the professors, including Craig and Lisa, had a graduate degree. And so I went to the GSD, graduated, and went back to San Francisco to work there for a few more years before entering teaching full-time. Hmm. I was actually about to ask you about your decision to teach and like what prompted that. What do you feel you've gained from it? or I don't know, How has that influenced who you are and how does that continue to influence who you are? You know, the different students that you come across. You know, it's something that I consider sometimes. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'll teach one day. I like school. I like whatever, whatever. And then some days I'm like, oh, I don't know, right? Because, um, <laughs> you know, teaching isn't a one-way thing, right? It's like you're imparting something in one direction and you're also getting something back. Uh -huh. I want to know, like, how has that experience been for you? And like, I know you probably don't want to say it sucks, but I'm like, you know, like, how does it also benefit you? Right. And where do you see it going even further? And how has it informed a lot of your work? Mm -hmm. You know, in one's lifetime, you have many mentors and, and you have many people that you look up to. When I think about my education, I think about the professors that inspired me through the way that they were teaching and engaging with the students. I also think about the professors that were really tough <laughs> and that in retrospect, despite the challenges at the time, whatever that might be, that I learned a tremendous amount from those folks as well. 
And I saw, I mean, again, I saw in the practice of Iwamoto Scott, the ways in which the things that they were doing in the studio informed the way in which they were teaching and the ways in which they were think they were doing in school were informing how they were thinking about the studio and that there was a kind of mutual reciprocity there. But I would also just say, it's just like, I had some teachers that were just like pretty amazing, you know, teachers that like could name a building and talk to you about the plan from memory, <laughs> any building, uh, teacher that's really to get into nitty gritty details about how she things come together. That passion and that intensity about different aspects of what we do to know that someone cares about that, even if you don't, <laughs> was so, so inspiring to me. I think it's a thankless job, but I can be incredibly fulfilling too. So I enjoy it because on the one hand, you know, there's a kind of intellectual discourse ideas are kind of circulating in the academy. You're engaging with a diverse group of students. I enjoy teaching core courses because I think the fundamentals are always like things that we revisit throughout most of our careers. And so it's been great. And then just practically, I think it allows me to kind of have a kind of financial stream that allows me to be a little bit more intentional about my practice. Um, meaning I don't have to like take on certain jobs that I, I don't want to just to pay the bills, but I can just choose not to <laughs> and rely on my teaching salary. And I just see myself as a forever student. And I think if you are a teacher, you are a kind of forever student because you're constantly learning things from your students, but the profession is changing and growing and building new kinds of knowledge. And I think the academy, you're always kind of interfacing with things before they move into the profession. And this is one. Sean was one of my first teachers at the GSD. And I remember one time in particular where you put this Robin Evans image that was inspirational to you on a slide deck. Um, it was a moment where there was a corner condition and you were interested in both the additive and subtractive qualities of that and how it related to typology. And as I've kind of progressed in my GSD path, I'm getting more and more interested in typology. And I know that you engage with typology a lot in your work. For example, in Yana's house, you were looking at the dog trot typology and also the courtyard typology and using that as a jumping off point to imagine something new. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about your fascination with typology and also how these lineages that were so important to you as a student play out in the work that you're producing? Mm, that's a great question. I think on the one hand, and I think you'll appreciate this because I know you have an interest in, in music and DJing. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in type because when you're organizing space, there's a kind of history that a typology is kind of engaged with. And in most contexts, you're often kind of receptive to that type. It's been around forever. It carries certain organizational principles. It orchestrates how we socialize in a particular way. It also is reflective of values, value systems too. And so I'm interested in it because I kind of, you know, I would say maybe as a person of color, we're definitely always receptive to types and appropriating them in, in new ways. And so I think the kind of mixing of things, mixing of typologies has always been kind of interesting to me to kind of think of a kind of other form of space that is being choreographed or composed out of things that are familiar, but then slightly defamiliarized through another series of operations. I actually had another question that is a little bit about you as a professor at the GSD, because you're like the only Black architecture faculty. That right? is correct. Yeah. And I feel like you have been my whole time here. How does that feel? I mean, I know like I'm the only Black woman in my year and there's times where I'm just like, yeah, whatever, I'm just at school, it doesn't matter. Um, and then there's other times where, you know, I'm like, people ask me questions like I'm supposed to speak for every Black student in architecture. And I'm literally like, mm -hmm. I don't yeah. know, why are you asking me? Right? So I'm wondering how have you contended with this in architecture, especially at the GSC, where like, you know, I feel like they probably have tried to get you to do that. And there's so many times it's like, how do you set this boundary where it's like, I can't speak for my whole community. I can't do all of that? And how do you, you know, create boundaries against tokenization in architecture? And how do you, you know, use moments where you can speak up for the community and other moments where you're just like, I'm sorry, I'm the only one, but like, I can't speak for everyone. And how do you 
work around these things and like also not feel isolated sometimes because I think right now because the other you know two black men who were MR once in my year doing theses we're doing them last semester so they're not around anymore either so often I'm like the only black person doing a thesis well there's one other one but you know often I feel like the only black person doing a thesis right now in architecture just in the trays I don't I often don't even like being in the trays it's like me and Sullen right and he he's around sometimes but you know I'm like oh my gosh it's just us up here so like how have you dealt with that especially you know as a faculty member yeah so i'll say in terms of the student body and i know we still have a lot of work to do in terms of that like there's a lot more representation of students of color so i don't feel as lonely as i used to (laughs) and i was definitely lonely as a student when i was at the gsd i mean i think you kind of answered it. I mean, I think it's a difficult thing to navigate for sure. And I try to stay true to myself and the things that I care about. And I've certainly been asked to you know, sit on panels about race and design or to be represented at every gathering of color. And I just can't because I can't speak for all Black people. We're not a monolithic culture. And I think others sometimes just need to be reminded of that in the nicest ways and sometimes in very blunt ways. And I think as a faculty, we're, we have a lot of responsibilities outside of our teaching, but we also have responsibilities to ourselves to advance our own work. And I'm constantly being in the face of a very potential student of color, or faculty of color. I'll never get my own things done. <laughs> Um, and so it's been difficult to navigate for sure, but I think because I've just kind of stayed true to myself and set boundaries, I think I've been able to kind of now deflect that questioning by productively educating some of my colleagues what's okay and what's not okay along those lines. I'm wondering, like, what kind of tools can we use to prevent our work from always being categorized as Black architecture, right, instead of architecture capital. It's like, you know, everything I do will be considered Black because I am Black. I know it's nothing that I can do, right? Because it's how people will perceive the work that I'm making. But there are times where I'm like, I am just making a project or something. I am making a thing. And they go, oh, it's a Black thing. And I'm like, I I mean, I am Black, but like what? Um, So I'm wondering, like, how do we work to keep people from always keeping us in a box in a way. And I'm not saying that it upsets me all the time when I'm like, you know, oh yeah, this is a black, but there are times where I'm like, why you don't call my friend's work a white project, right? Or whatever Mm -hmm. project, but it's always a black something. Mm -hmm. And how have you worked to do that? Because I, I feel like you've done that very well, right? Like I feel like at this school, nobody is always sitting around going, oh, a, a Black project by Sean Kinty. It's a project by Sean Kinty. And we're like, yes, it's very great, right? But I, I feel like often when I make a project, people are like, oh, yeah, you know, you love talking about Black stuff. And I'm like, what? It's what? And I don't, clearly I'm like at a loss for words. So it's like, how do we get sometimes people to go beyond that? Or they go, oh, you know, this is that's just the way you are. And I'm like, because I care about my community and I know it shows at times that I do care about my community, but that's not the only thing that I am. You know, I am an artist, not just a Black artist, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the mm-hmm. same issue that we always have at award shows, right? And all those kind of things, like it's on a larger scale in this country. Absolutely. How do we manage to reframe some of these conversations so that we aren't always categorized as something else? You know, I don't know that I have an easy answer to that other than that I, you know, Part of my identity, certainly that I am Black, but it's just like one facet of many other things that makes me as a person. I try to authentically <laughs> project that out into the world as much as possible, all these other facets. And I can't change people's perception of me or of my work, but I can actively project my work in a way in which I want it to be seen. I think I try to do that, you know, through writing alternative methods of communication, social media, where I can be in control of those narratives, uh, and even how I talk about it during lectures, you know, and did an interview recently, and I was kind of asked a similar question about the quiet aspect of me as a personality and the work, and then the more kind of vocal aspects in terms of maybe the forms of activism I might engage in. And I don't think those things need to be one and the same. I don't think I need to have a kind of similar approach to both things. I can put on different hats when I want to. (laughs) I can do the kind of work that I want to. I don't need to be, I find it slightly problematic that, you know, uh, after the George Floyd protest and the kind of racial reckoning in this country, that a lot of institutions were making positions, particularly 
for people of color to enter the institution, but only by means of only working on racial or social equity. And I think that's incredibly limiting because I know my work doesn't address those issues. I care about those issues deeply as a person, obviously, but that's not me as a designer. And I shouldn't have to, in order to get a job at an academic institution or a respected academic institution, I have to apply for this particular fellowship in order to get it. So, you know, part of it has been trying to kind of really make sure that the work is always the best it can be, whatever it is, so that it maybe speaks for itself in terms of what it's about. And to avoid, certainly before George Floyd protests and the institutional critiques that came out of it, that there were opportunities that were put in front of me that seemed enticing to take, but seemed also in the long run kind of limiting to my growth. Um, and it took a lot of failure, and a lot of rejections from fellowships, applying to institutions to get where I am now. Even though it's not perfect, I feel that here I'm able to do what I want to do as a, as a designer and as an instructor without people saying you should be only working on this or doing that. So don't lock yourself in either. And if you do, then be very strategic about it, how you want to like use that as a jumping point to do what you actually want to do. Yeah. And I guess the intersection of race and architecture, I think is like the underlying sentiment underneath the question of typology and understanding the way you're using typology as like a kind of material for remixing. And that's always something that was inspirational to me. And I think that even seeing some of your more recent work, having a project, like project in quotes, that can hold race inside it. For example, I'm thinking of Crown House and your engagement with Basquiat and your engagement with Black lineages in addition to the architectural lineages that we were speaking about earlier. So I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about how like lineages like Basquiat, how has that influenced your work and how does your work disciplinarily relate to these Black lineages um, like Basquiat or any anyone else you look up to and have been inspired by? Yeah, I would say... There's a few figures. Certainly there was no one in architecture that I could easily look to. Mm-hmm, <laughs> yeah. And at least in the American sense. And so I began kind of gravitating towards the arts because there's such a kind of like larger representation of us there, you know, from you know, Kerry James Marshall, you know, how he critiques the Western canon of painting through a kind of utmost mastery of technique. Like, therefore I have to like, I have to be like, excellent in order to subvert all the things that excluded me from this canon was one thing that I was like, oh man, that's pretty amazing. Basquiat, who was kind of at the center of the art scene at the time and just a kind of prolific painter with so much energy, but also so much culture around him that was also not solely Black. It was very intersectional in many ways. And the crown, you know, as a kind of symbol, a repeating um, symbol in the work that meant many different things um, and could take on many different permutations due to how he was placing the crown in relationship to something. And usually that something was something related to a Black figure or Black culture or even just elevating himself. So the mutability of that symbol was something that was very much you know, profound to kind of realize and, and exploring his work. And then trying to figure out the ways in which how might that idea map onto thinking about a house, thinking about a starter home, and thinking about how the home could, over time, accommodate modest transformations. You know, given it's a starter home that you don't have a lot of money to hire an architect, but if somehow the organization of the house implied or suggested that maybe, oh, I might want to partition this wall here, or take this wall out about compromising its structural integrity, but making it a little bit more your own was the idea there. Two figures that I think are kind of working between disciplines now, and I'm kind of jealous of because I can't, I've been trying to do it, you know. I always bring up Solange because she's like doing it all. <laughs> that's all that's all, all we ever everybody where was like yes launch yes 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 of course yes. oh my uh, god yeah you know every time i turn around she has like a new project going on and um, i'm like oh come on without me <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah exactly right yeah right no, um, actually though like it's rude at this point <laughs> yeah but you know what's amazing about those figures in the salons virgil kanye 
just the names like the major ones is that they also have found modes of practice that are much more collaborative. There's like teams of people that they're working with, but they might not be working with them on every project. These things that are kind of maybe outside of what we traditionally learn in terms of practice, in terms of how we think about visual culture, in terms of how we think about history, has kind of creeped its way in into the work in subtle ways. And I think I've been looking for those opportunities more, those kind of like overlaps more, or trying to do those deep dives more and like try to find ways of placing it in the work. Because I realized I might not have been taught this in school, but we have just an incredible plethora of history and creative history in our culture. And now I just like actively look for it. I think I was you know, very much inspired by reading a text by Bell Hooks. And there's two, uh, I'm thinking of Black vernacularism, where she speaks about the agency of the home and of the interior of the home, particularly in Southern Black culture. And she uses her own personal narrative of her grandfather who like, slowly works on a room by room by room approach for each family member of the house. Just kind of imagine that every room is like slightly different. So the next visit, next Christmas visit or next Thanksgiving visit, like someone else's room has been added. So it was like a more aggregative strategy of typology, less top down. But I think in that text, what I really appreciated was of her, you know, highlighting in this particular instance of our culture, the ways in which we have been creatively active in space making. And I don't think I ever thought about that. I just always thought that it was left to others to do that for us. But she just like went straight to the source. <laughs> like, and also spoke to how those kind of acts, those creative acts within a domestic realm were quite transgressive in terms of questions of race, racism, and who determines space. So now I'm, I'm, I kind of like actively seek, you know, I look outside of our profession, particularly at visual culture, to find sources and references that then can kind of smuggle its way into my work and hopefully, you know, enlighten others uh, or, or produce new frameworks that are integrating questions of blackness or queerness um, in subtle ways, at least for me in subtle ways. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's just like kind of how I've been thinking about the work recently and some of the influences. Yeah, I I feel like, you know, especially with a lot of people we've been talking to on the podcast, there's this common thread, I mean, even amongst the two of us here right now, like, of, you know, we always have to look outside of architecture because within what we've been formally taught in architecture, there wasn't anything that really appealed to us. It seemed almost too limiting. You know, like, the projects weren't, as exciting, right? Yeah, I don't want to hear about the same people every day, right? And then they're not doing interesting stuff. And we seemed more tuned into Black culture, which is always, you know, working with stuff like Solange, Frank Ocean. Like, they're doing exciting stuff that are these whole productions with these very cool ways of rolling it out digitally. So then we're also always thinking about digital space as well. Um, and I, I feel like there's all this really cool stuff that's happening and we are always kind of working outside of a formal education while being formally educated, um, which is very exciting to me. Um, but it's almost hard because it seems like at first when you start doing it, you're almost working alone. And it's not until you start talking to other like black creatives or like black people in, in architecture and whatever that they go, oh, I've been doing the same thing. Um, and I actually I came across your 200 plus black creators and I was like, well, would you look at that? I didn't know this existed. Right. And, like, there's several people on that that we've also had on the podcast, which was also pretty cool. Or, like, several people that I've, like, talked to who, you know, went to the GSD and and I we've had do, like, Noma's talks with us and stuff like that. And it's interesting because some of them have also had similar conversations where they were like, yeah, you know, I looked outside of architecture at other people who are doing multifaceted kind of approaches to architecture where it's not just the built environment. It's a whole oral experience, oral with the AU, you know, there's a lot of haptics to it. There's so much more to it than what we're taught in school. And somehow it just seems to almost be inherent in like the way that we're approaching architecture. And I'm not sure if it's because we are just so out, we are coming from feeling so outside of architecture that it just seems natural to us to look beyond what's taught in the classroom. And yeah, I don't know if yeah. what I'm saying makes sense, but like. No, it totally yeah. makes sense. I would also say that it is it certainly is like I think a cultural thing, but I also think that even within the profession, there are people 
they're figures that have been professionally trained as an architect and are operating outside of the, you know, the traditional notions of what an architect should do. We know that. They're also figures that are outside of architecture that adopt the modes and practices of an architect. I only bring this up because I think in school we don't learn so much about these two diverging modes of practice that I think, you know, certainly a lot of creatives of color fall into one of these silo, one of these buckets. But there's also just a whole lineage of people, you know, in the canon that have that have been doing this um, as well. I just wish we got to foreground more of that. I love Luana's non-professional practice course because I think she touches on some of these things, like how we practice, when we depart from it in a particular way and, and adopt other modes of practice and, and how does that come back in and get reappropriated within what we do as architects and what's the products of that. But I feel like if, we were, if those two things were on the table more like than the kind of singular author gone to architecture school, has started the practice, is working on architecture, I think we would broaden the spectrum of what does it mean to have a, a spatial practice? And I think we need to be looking at people that are not trained traditionally as architects and are operating similar to an architect, but obviously doing something slightly different. Um, and then those that are trained as architects, but then have left the profession to do, you know, still working in the built environment, but are doing things that are kind of off in an exciting way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a question immediately there of like the context of that engagement. I think traditionally it, it has always been the academic space. And I think the academic space has a lot of liberty to kind of engage work, be it work that's happening in the context of the academic institution, but also work that's happening outside of the academic institution. But I think of you know, rest in peace, Virgil. But I think his work was so exciting to me because he brought the idea of tourist and purist, the purist being like a more like academic type and the tourist being uh, somebody who could kind of walk up and understand it via other means. It's so much of that work changed the context by which we're engaging um, with work and the context at which we're looking for things for something like a canonization, like should Chief Keith be in the canon of Black architecture and what's the right form of engaging Chief Keith in the context of the spatial realm or Solange or literally a bunch of creatives there. I'm curious about your thoughts on the context of this engagement in terms of like bringing things from outside of architecture in or bringing things from inside architecture out and what context is that um, moving forward and how can we cultivate that? Yeah, I mean, this is something I'm, I don't think I can disclose fully now, but this is something that I've been working on a particular project with <laughs> Tara. What's the, what's the you tea? You know I love tea. I was just watching drama tea. <laughs> but <exclusive> with um, <laughs> John May and Zena, two of my colleagues and good friends, where we're thinking about this question of multiplicity and practice and the modes of collaboration and the modes of different modes of outputs and exchanges. And is this something new or is this something old? I think it's more prevalent now given some of the frameworks of technology and social media and software. But again, I think there are people in the discipline who have been working like this that we all know of. But, you know, for instance, Charles and Ray Eames, right? They weren't just working on architecture. They were on products and they were working on pavilions or Jean Prouvet. But our history courses are still, you know, privileging the kind of single author and a single canonical building and maybe not some of the narratives or the forgotten narratives, the lost narratives of the things that came along in that process of getting that canonical building built or the other kinds of work that those, you know, architects that we might be looking to, I don't know, like Brunelleschi or Borromini or someone like that. Like, what were the extents of their practice? <laughs> Which doesn't always lead to an architectural object, but it might lead to a piece of furniture or painting or something else. So anyway, I think like, you know, that kind of mixity in production is so prevalent now, and particularly in, you know, practices like Virgil and who is like fluidly moving between, you know, more informal street culture, formal cultures, mediums, disciplines. So I'm really excited about those folks. I wish I was that much of a Renaissance man, but I think they also have profoundly changed our perception of what it means to be a designer now. And you know, particularly with Virgil, like a kind of particular mode of thinking like an architect 
how it can be leveraged and like applied to other things. There's a kind of rigor to that. There's a kind of nice rigor, but there's also, I feel like he instrumentalized his education more not doing architecture <laughs> than he would have if he stuck on a traditional path, actually. I think we all have tremendous agency in how we deploy our knowledge and our skill sets. I think he was someone that would like, there was no limit to anything that he could do. And that he was thinking about all scales of design. And he probably, I mean, I'm sure he's designed buildings, but you know, I I would love to see if he designed a full scale building, it would probably be amazing as well. hundred (laughs) percent. Yeah. I follow the lady who um, designs like the Louis Vuitton windows, Mm -hmm. you know, since he was like the creative director. Fantastic. Love them. Right. And they just like switched the window displays so quickly, like the whole idea behind them. And I was just like, the two of them working in collaboration just completely changed the idea of like what a window display and like what like the identity of a street for a store could be. It was so cool. So I love it. I'm obsessed, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, I love it. But those figures also kind of break, you know, I think in a good way, disciplinary silos. Like I think people that I I know that didn't pay attention to their built environment or who went to an off-white store or went to um, a salon show and like are now paying attention to these things. And wow, that set was amazing. The whole thing was amazing. Mm -hmm. It's an experience, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think they're like, they've kind of helped open up the profession a little bit, and, and I think in, in a good way to know that you know, some people don't know that people design buildings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some people don't know that <laughs> someone's designed your street. Someone has designed everything, you know. So I think now I feel like what we do is more accessible a little bit more than what it used to be because of these figures that are kind of at the fringe of many different or at the edges of many different kinds of creative practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with the accessibility point, I wonder about designs engagement right now with community engagement as a method and way of building and to the extent an architect has a responsibility to engage with one's community to engage with one's context in the process of building and how that engagement looks so for example like i'm starting my thesis journey now and like the site is likely going to be in harlem and figuring out the right way to engage that context from a standpoint of academia, but then also understanding like what's the right way to engage with the place that one isn't from, one didn't grow up in, but ultimately is producing design that is going to shape this community in a very, you know, hopefully productive way. <laughs> and that depends what mode of practice we're talking about, which is another layer of complexity. But I'm, I'm wondering where these two things kiss and how like the accessibility that these creatives that we're discussing like Virgil has opened up and then how it kind of relates to conversations happening in community engagement right now within the discipline. I wouldn't say that I have any expertise in this area. I can only speculate of maybe what I would do. I think the best thing is to maybe be kind of transparent about your intentions with the community that you're working with and not be extractive, but try to have a kind of conversation and that there's a kind of reciprocity uh, between what you're doing and who you're designing for. What does that look like? I mean, I think it could take many forms. I feel, one, you kind of have to educate people about what you do, even if they have some idea of what you do. I think it's important to make sure that they know what an architect does, what's the limits of the architect, and what's the limits of the things that they could solve, but also how architecture could be a catalyst to kind of you know provoke other discussions. The formats of that, I don't know. You know, I think artifacts are more easily understood than drawings. I think also language also plays an important part. So how do we communicate our ideas verbally? And how do we communicate our ideas visually? And I would say like something like a model feels more participatory than an image or rendering. Because now someone that you're talking to in the community can see and they might be able to move some things themselves. <laughs> but it seems like a kind of object that you can have a conversation around rather than coming to them with a set of ideas that might seem fixed. I don't have a particular answer to that, but but the one to think about who your community is and to figure out what is the best format of conversation. You know, there's a kind of history, both in practice and, and in the academy, of kind of dropping into a kind of disadvantaged community 
for the needs of conjecture, speculation, and, and then dropping out, you know. And that seems, I don't know, that doesn't seem right, right? Like, so either you're, you know, you are compensating those that are involved in that process for their time and their assistance. And you're also making your boundaries clear that, you know, you don't have literal power or agency in it, but what you might do might actually be fodder or might be a catalyst for the kinds of things that they want to see changed in their community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, the reason I ask is because I was thinking about the project you did in Philadelphia last summer and you grew up in Philadelphia, right? I did. Yeah. Okay, cool. And yeah, I mean, actually, um, can you speak a bit about that project? You're going to explain it better than I will for our viewers, and I'll ask the follow-up question. <laughs> okay. Viewers, listeners. Okay. Viewers, listeners. listeners. <laughs> uh, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia in the kind of cultural consciousness of the city. What's called the move bombing is everyone knows about it. And we were doing research on maybe new housing, you know, how can we think about new housing strategies, but how can we think about maybe addressing questions of climate or climate resiliency? And also really trying to find really practical strategies, not anything that was like super high tech, but like, how can we cool the block by adding more landscape? How can we think about water drainage in the case of storm surges? And then how can we think about a better quality of housing that has less embodied carbon footprint? So many different research topics on the table that fed into that proposal, which we were thinking about an urban block, a kind of communal space called the commons, and then row housing. And the site of the move bombing, I hadn't, until we started this, like, I mean, we had like a kind of set of questions that we wanted to address. We were looking for a site. And the history of the site, I felt kind of fascinating you know, the move group were at a kind of lifestyle that was kind of incommensurate with the black middle class neighborhood around it. it was maybe seen quite radical, although I think now maybe some of their ideas aren't so radical. <laughs> like their relationship to space, the ground, how they eat, slightly different notions of cleanliness or, or bathing, different notions of community. Anyway, they had some run-ins with their neighbors and also subsequently with the city government and the police force tried to extract one member of the group and there was some resistance and so they wanted to bomb just the house that the group lived in um, they owned a couple of houses on the block they ended up i mean one it's just absurd that you would in the extraction of someone that you would drop a bomb <laughs> and i think if it was a white middle class neighborhood that would not have happened yeah. at all mm-hmm. but anyway yeah. it ended up burning the whole block <laughs> so actually a very healthy wealthy neighborhood is actually now raised to the ground through this one incident so that's a lot of heavy history yeah. um, and definitely was like something that i you know knew of growing up and struggled in doing the project i don't say that i maybe addressed all the complexities of that site properly but i think we learned through the history of how the site before when it was bombed how it was rebuilt by the city after the bombing what happened to that housing stock after it was rebuilt it was rebuilt poorly and kind of still had the scars of the original bombing and then it was torn down again and then i think in the early 2000s an rfp went out for kind of market rate housing that looks like that's just like kind of developer market rate housing so we just kind of did a kind of like what would an alternative be to what eventually was built you know probably now you know upper middle class housing that doesn't have the kind of community that it had before in that area what would an alternative be so and how could we address these questions of climate and resiliency and i think maybe the biggest equally in terms of addressing those questions of like how do we think about cooling the block particularly in urban areas of color which have less landscape than affluent white neighborhoods how do we think about storm surges and flooding because those will be more prevalent and how do we think about a better typology of housing but then how do we operate on this site that has a heavy history? And I think one of the things, one of the main things, at least symbolically that we did was to not build where the houses were bombed, but to allow that to be a space for the community. So a space of reflection, but also a space of leisure and a space that can be kind of engaged with many people and, and perhaps maybe take on some of those practices that the 
spatial practices in the loop we're, we're quite kind of interested in. But then how would he also kind of rebuild and densify around that? So it really requires to think at multiple scales. It was an interesting research project. I personally have not spoken to anyone from any of the members that are still surviving of that or any people that lived on the block during the time. But I think we had to definitely consider and, and be thoughtful about how we would engage such a kind of problematic site to acknowledge the history, both in, in terms of the research, but also to acknowledge it in terms of how we felt was appropriate to respond as designers. And I think, think it was best to leave it as an absence rather than to build over it as the city did with generic market rate housing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what I would call that. I'm like, it's almost a memorial, but not a memorial. Almost a monument, not a monument. Almost a, you know, I always feel like the struggle our generation is having now with how do we commemorate things through absence? What do you call those when there's nothing there to mark the thing, but through the absence the absence is the memorial. What do you title this? It's a housing project, right? Yeah, I mean, we call it Block House Commons. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the commons was that having the commons there, you know, we try to think about our designs, like what's the payoff and how can it address many different things? So the biggest thing was a space of memory and as a memorial, perhaps a space to gather, to reflect on that event as a community and as a city once a year, but also a space that the block could use on a daily basis and a space that designed appropriately or landscaped appropriately could have climatic benefits to the block as well. So that maybe this was a kind of strategy of maybe thinking about in a different way, obviously, but other blocks that are going to probably have definitely similar problems to this one (laughs) in terms of addressing resiliency in the face of global warming. So, you know, I don't know if we tackled too many things and I don't know if we tackled them in the the right way, but it was a fun and humbling project to work on. Also self-initiated. So I think it was also hard to kind of take on a project like that. And I often think at least the research projects aren't never quite finished. They're always able to kind of be revised and worked on or engaged in a different way later on. So... I don't think it's the end of that project, but I think it's opened up other beginnings for me and how I'm thinking as a designer, but also maybe we'll open up other conversations regarding that particular place and site. Yeah. Yeah. And as I've been reflecting on this conversation, I'm just wondering what the right role of, I guess, abstraction is in all these conversations or like in terms of when to leave a space as void versus when to build on a space. But also like I'm I'm just thinking about just with your work, something I notice is like a inversion of inside and outside that happens sometimes, like whether that's through like a courtyard or through the patios in this project or through a kind of cut in a street wall and wondering, and like, I can't cite it, but I know that Fred Moten has some thoughts on similar lines of like the subversion of inside and outside and like the productivity of that in relation to blackness. And I'm like wondering, is that like too abstract of a reading of of your work or like what's the role of those themes that are reoccurring and like to what extent is an abstraction from a context and then a putting back an architectural form? And and also this is like my way of being like, we haven't talked about geometry, (laughs) love a geometry yet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, we haven't. Um, (laughs) I think those spaces to me are, I mean, there's a personal answer to that. You know, there are always kind of spaces of, simultaneity two things existing in one space ambiguity and also a kind of acknowledgement like thinking about the other when you're i always think that when you are adding things or putting things adjacent to each other how you're putting things adjacent to each other and the space in between is not just residual but the space in between is also a space that you have to kind of think concurrently about when you're thinking additively and that when you're subtracting something out, you're also thinking about the form that is missing. So there's a kind of, there's something that's very present, but there's something that's also absent that you have to kind of reconstruct mentally or conceptually in your mind. So that's the kind of simultaneity and kind of being in two things at once that, I, that I'm that i interested in personally. 
then there's also just the kind of like historically that these are the kinds of spaces that I think have been appropriated and socialized by people of color in many different ways. And then there's just this like quality of life. I think there's something nice about that we can take for granted often being adjacent to open space and natural light that I find just important. So some of that thinking is, you know, it's, it's obviously informed by people like Michael Heiser, Double Negative, you know, Fred Moten, and then of course, you know, geometry, the kind of double reading of a form. You know, if you take a base off of a cone, it no longer becomes a solid, but it becomes a surface that contains space inside of it, right? And so just that one removal of something radically modifies the geometric object to something else. So I like to kind of play with those games between, you know, is it thick, is it thin, is it solid, is it void, am I in or out? Which I hope give the subject some pause to really think about the spatial condition that they're in. But architecture is often a backdrop against their very like busy lives and maybe these moments where you're like, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> or, huh, that's kind of curious. So anyway, yeah, I'm always kind of looking at those moments of where you kind of confound readings and maybe opportunities, but I do as a practice might display itself to a larger public or make a public question or wonder or inquire about what we do in a, in a particular way. Thank you so much, Sean, for joining us on this episode and sharing so much. We appreciate yeah. it. Thank you yeah, so yeah, much. Yeah, this is a very Thank candid you. conversation. No, we appreciated <laughs> it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm Tara Luafemi. And I'm Darian Carr. And you've been listening to The Nexus, a product of the African-American Design Nexus at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maggie Janik. And we would like to thank DJ Iwe for our theme music. To learn more about the African-American Design Nexus, visit us online at aadn.gsd.harvard.edu.